welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Joseph Roth was one of the foremost European writers of the 20th century, and he wrote one of the period's greatest novels, The Radetzky March. By the time he was 24 years old, the country of his birth no longer existed, and in his remaining 20 years of life, he witnessed the end of the civilized world. I first got interested in Roth after I moved to Berlin, which was his temporary home in the early 1920s. His short-form journalism captured the feeling of acceleration and compression and cultural upheaval of the cities he lived in. And those fleeting moments of everyday life give us a unique glimpse into world-shaking events seen through a distinctly personal lens. Roth's biographer Kieran Pym joined me to talk about this remarkably restless writer who lived in hotels and pined for a homeland he knew he'd never find. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Some of my listeners may not be aware of Joseph Roth. Could you set the stage for us with a brief introduction before we plunge into his work? Who was he? Sure. Uh, Hello, Ryan. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. Who was Joseph Roth? Um, Well, he was born in 1894, died in 1939. He was one of the great novelists and journalists of the period between the wars, best known for his novel, The Radetzky March, and maybe a little behind that, his novel Job. Um, But in his lifetime, particularly, equally well known as a a journalist, a, a wonderful journalist, writing predominantly for the Frankfurter Zeitung newspaper. Um, he was a man who, whose work processed and, and analysed the issues of his time, the rise of nationalism, uh, the rise of Nazism, uh, the increasing difficulties of Jewish life between the wars. Um, he was also a man who, as his personal difficulties uh intensified who who sought solace in the past and kind of moved in his fiction at least into something of an idealized fantasy world based on the Habsburg empire that he grew up under he was born in what's now ukraine uh, at the time it was the crownland of galicia in the austro-hungarian empire when that collapsed at the end of the First World War, it was cataclysmic for him, really. He felt that his world had fallen away, and he really spent much of the rest of his life seeking a replacement homeland, seeking somewhere that he would feel at home. And this is a theme that you see again and again in, in his fiction, in his journalism, journalism and in his letters. Um, so he was a man who was a wonderful writer, a very troubled individual, and a man who was always as I put it in my book, in, in endless flight, always moving from one place to the next and always pursuing this impossible heart, you know, impossible to find home that he could never quite discover, but was always seeking. So a fascinating biographical subject and a wonderful writer. He was born in Galicia. At the time, this was on the fringes of the empire, sort of a frontier region. What, what was that like, the world he first saw? Oh, yeah. So he was born in a town called Brody, B-R-O-D-Y. It was just close by the empire, uh, so the Austrian empire's border with the Russian empire. Um, so he kind of grew up for, with the feeling of Russia breathing 
down his neck, if you like. He was always very conscious of Russia. Uh, it was a town where many Russian Jews fled across the border into Brody following pogroms in the late 19th century. But he was very much an Austrian. He, he identified very, very clearly and proudly as an Austrian. Uh, he was quite rare among his peers in Brody in, in the early 20th century in the fact that he identified as a Habsburg monarchist. He was very proud of the association with the Habsburg Empire, and he looked up towards the Habsburgs, um, and particularly to the Emperor, Franz Joseph, um, which I connect especially with the fact that he never knew his father. Roth's father went insane before Roth was born. They never met, and there was always this great absence in his life, a, a father-shaped hole in his life, which he looked to fill in various ways, but one of the main ways especially in his early life, was that I think he saw the emperor as a kind of safe, solid, um, distant, but somehow all-encompassing paternal figure. Um, and, yeah, it's one of the stories of his life, really, that the search for fathers, um, once, once the emperor had died halfway through the war, that left a, a gap that he needed to fill again. And we see other figures kind of loom in his life later on. Uh, his friendship with Stefan Zweig, for example, is one of the most important relationships of his life. And Zweig, to some extent, being 13 years older, he wasn't quite of the paternal generation, but he, he seems to have played a rather fatherly role towards Roth in some ways. So he grew up in Brody, a very Jewish town. He grew up surrounded by Hasidic Jewish culture. Uh, his his grandfather, in whose house uh, he was born and raised, um, was a devout Orthodox Jew. Um, Roth was rather more ambivalent. He was defined by it, but he was also very much in opposition to it at times as well. He talked in some of his angrier moments about how he rejected his Jewishness. He wanted to be an individual. He didn't really want to be a part of any kind of tribe, any nation, any larger group. He was very much an individualist. Um, he described himself once as a defector from Jews and from Germans. So having grown up, being raised towards Austrian-German culture and really revering it, and then being very disillusioned by the way that Germany and Austria turned on their Jewish populations, um, being horrified by the rise of Nazism and nationalism and the way that German Germanic culture descended into barbarism. He was obviously very angry with Germany, um, rejected German culture, which at one point had seemed the, the epitome of high culture to him. But he was also very dismayed by the way that he saw much of Jewish Europe going as well. He had no, no truck with Zionism, as with any form of nationalism. Uh, so he, he rejected the great number of Jews who, who went in the Zionist direction in the period between the wars. So he became increasingly an isolated figure. You've got a great quotes in your book about this, this um, how multi-layered that world is. This is something I didn't know about until I read it. Broth said, the more Western the origins of a Jew, the more Jews there are for him to look down on. The Frankfurt Jew despises the Berlin Jew. The Berlin Jew despises the Viennese Jew. The Viennese Jew despises the Warsaw Jew, and then there are the Jews from all the way back in Galicia, upon whom they all look down, and that's where I come from, the lowest of the Jews. Could you explain this sort of multi-textured world? 
So, yeah, I mean, you, you've put your finger on one of the most important elements of his attitude towards Jewishness, which was that he originated in the, the part of Eastern Europe that really was seen kind of as the, the lowest of the low. I mean, broadly, Galicia was, um, Galicia was seen as the back of beyond, and it was seen as synonymous with squalor and penury and illiteracy. And even w within the Jewish community within Europe, the further east you went, the more, as he said, the more people there were to look down on you. And, and he was from the very east, from the, from the far east, just by the border with Russia. He felt very much looked down upon. Was this because of uh, the poverty of those regions or was it something more cultural? I think it was both. It was poverty. It was illiteracy. It was the association with superstition and rather to many people's minds, unenlightened religious practices. So the fact that it was such an orthodox or ultra-orthodox ultra Jewish area with this Hasidic culture that was so invested in ideas about contactability of God, God being present all around, God being a miracle worker whose works could be witnessed in day-to-day in -day life. It was easy for Jews who were further west who were more, in inverted commas, assimilated, because obviously we saw later that they weren't really assimilated at all, but who it seemed might have been assimilated into German-Austrian culture. Um, it was very easy to look down on the Jews of, of the East, who were far more superstitious and often illiterate or semi-illiterate, um, and very much contained within their own enclosed world. And Roth grew up on the one hand, defined by that, but also very eager to burst out from that rather claustrophobic world and to head west and to assimilate in Vienna or Berlin. So there was a great deal of ambivalence. And as you say, it was very multi-layered. Um, he was defined by that area. He always had an attachment to it. People said that he never seemed anything like as much at home anywhere else. And yet, and when he went back there, on the rare occasion he went back to Brody and to Galicia, he seemed far more relaxed and far more himself and far more at home. He wasn't performing, he wasn't putting on an act, but he felt very ambivalent about it and very much that it was somewhere really that you had to escape from, you had to get away from if you were going to realise your potential, um, if you were going to live a kind of fully realised life as a writer, which is what he tried to do. So he was incredibly torn and conflicted. There's something very small town about that too, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anybody who comes from a very small place, you know, has that feeling that you you have to get out and break out of this tiny. I came from a, a 4,000 person town in, in southern Ontario. Mm -hmm. And there, there was very much a feeling that the world wasn't happening there. And you really had to get away from that place as fast as possible. Yep. And then... And then the next place and the next place. But yeah. it's interesting that <laughs> as I get older, I, I look back at this place much more fondly. And I'm I'm very curious about uh, to write about it and to mm. revisit it. And you say that Roth, though he rarely returned to Galicia in person, and he kind of obscured his origins there, he wrote about it, the place and its people nostalgically in his fiction, uh, more and more the longer mm. he stayed away. He did, yeah. I mean, really, from the end of the 20s onwards, we see this pivot in his in his fiction which coincides or is prompted by the intensification of difficulties in his personal life um 
So as his marriage started to fall apart, his wife, Friedel, uh, nay Rachler, Friedel Rachler, um, descended quite rapidly into what was probably schizophrenia. Roth's drinking intensified, uh, his spending, because they always lived in hotels, he was always living beyond his means, he got deeper and deeper into debt, he became more and more depressed and angry and anxious. And of course, the political events that we've touched on already only heightened his despair. So from about 1928-29 onwards, you see his fiction shift from being concerned with reflecting the iniquities of 1920s Berlin and Vienna, really. Um, this series of novel novels that fitted within the uh, style known as Heimkehrer Romana, homecoming novels, looking at the situation of soldiers returning from the First World War and finding that they had changed and their home, again in inverted commas, had changed as well and they couldn't really find a place that felt like home in what used to be their home. So he moves from those, from writing several of those kind of novels to increasingly sketching out a fictional world that's inspired by the little towns, broady and similar predominantly Jewish towns near the border, Galician border with Russia. And he does that again and again. It starts in 1929 in a novel he never quite finished, which was going to be called Strawberries. There's also uh, a little, a few passages that hint at this direction in a novel called Right and Left um, from that kind of time. But it really starts in earnest with Job, which was published in 1930, which was his his first novel that was really set in that area. And it's his most Jewish novel. And it shows him really returning in earnest to the world that he grew up in and depicting it in very tender, detailed terms. And then the next novel after that is The Brodetsky March. And then really most of the books that he writes from that point onwards follow in that, in that trend of having protagonists who are either based in little towns out in, in the east of the Austrian Empire or who are initially somewhere further towards the heart of the empire but then get sent out back out to the periphery, back out to the little town, uh, which is generally modelled on, on Brody. We, we see this again and again. It happens in the Rodetsky March, where Karl Joseph von Trotter, uh, the main character, gets sent out, exiles to a garrison town out in the east again. And yeah, it just happens repeatedly. And he keeps, Roth keeps sketching out this fictional world, filling in detail after detail, as if he was... I think I say in the book, it's rather like he was a, a trauma victim who was compelled to keep replaying the same scene in his head. But he obviously took pleasure in it as well. And it was an enjoyable retreat from the painful reality that was his life in the 1930s. It's interesting that in addition to his writing, his um, personality or the development of his personality matches that same pattern in a sense. Like you say that he developed a, a split identity that straddled snobbery and self-disgust. So he spent much of his life pretending to be someone else, um, an Austrian rather than an Eastern Jew, a lieutenant in the Austrian army rather than a corporal, and later a person of mixed ancestry. But then later on, he he wants to be seen as as this world dissolved around him and the nation that he was born into ceased to exist. He he increasingly wanted to be seen as someone who straddles borders, like a man of mixed heritage, um, almost the physical embodiment of the Austrian or the Habsburg Empire. But like that empire, 
hyphenated identities can prove fragile. It's a bit of an unstable foundation. Yeah, I, I found it really interesting to write about that in the book. And I returned to that idea of hyphenated identity, well, a couple of times. Um, you know, as far as we know, well, it seems certain that both his parents were Jewish, but he liked to say that his mother was Jewish and his father, his father, this great absence in his life, who he was always looking to, to replace in different ways or, you know, who represented a gap that he was always projecting imagined replacements onto again and again he he describes his father as being this different character so sometimes he's a dissolute gentile viennese painter i think on one occasion or an armaments manufacturer or a polish count again and again he's describing himself as having a jewish mother and a non-jewish father so it follows from that that he he seems to have liked the idea of being seen as having a hyphenated identity of straddling borders of you know, being being of mixed heritage um the idea of borders and internationalism rejection of borders it's a theme i play with quite a bit in, in the book you know he was a great internationalist he he hated nationalism he hated borders he hated barriers between people and he writes very beautifully and passionately in the mid-twenties when he first really settled in France and he was so enraptured by what he saw travelling around the south of France. He went to Avignon and he was rhapsodising about the great mixing of different ethnicities, different heritages that he saw there. And he was really reacting there against this drive towards racial so-called purity that he saw in Germany as nationalism was starting to take grip. And he was very much someone who, as he puts it in one of those pieces, one of the pieces of newspaper journalism he wrote from the south of France in the 20s, the more pigments in in the palettes, the better, the more colours, the better, the more ingredients in the recipe, the better. He saw this as an enrichment of humanity, not a dissolution in any way. So he was someone who was very much in favour of enrichments, and he rather liked the idea of being seen uh, as as part of that process himself. But also, he he was, as far as his personal situation was concerned, he was lying. <laughs> he was a, a great fantasist, and he was not at all averse to, to spreading misinformation about himself, which, on the one hand, I think he just had a, a novelist's pleasure in making up stories as much about himself as about his fictional characters. But also you can see that it was rather pragmatic in the situation that he was in as a Jew in, in the 1920s and 30s to kind of scatter a few false leads here and there as well. And there was comedy in it as well. I mean, I remember an, an incident from your yeah. book where he he was wearing a medal or something when he was claiming to be of a higher <laughs> rank in, in his uh, World War One service. And, and somebody asked him about it and he said, oh yeah, I just bought that, like a pawn shop or something. Yeah, that's the story that comes from his friend uh, Geza von Sifra's memoir of their friendship. Von Sifra recalls seeing him wearing this model, but then someone else told him that, um, that Roth had just picked it up from a yeah, like a a junk shop or something or a pawn shop. So he he was not averse clearly to taking this inhabitation of other 
personas to um to you know take them quite far um yeah wearing medals and also he used to dress in a fashion that befitted an austrian army officer he liked to have his tra- his trousers cut by a, a tailor into the kind of narrow style that was associated with the austrian officer class now, he was never an officer uh, but he you know he liked to be seen as such and he was something of a snob as well and the austrian imperial army officer became an archetype that he he very much liked and admired and wanted to impersonate and he saw as a role model really and he affected some of the mannerisms associated with that class and his speech became kind of scattered with little sayings military sayings that uh, were shaped by his, his time in the army which was a he was in the army the second the latter two years of the first world war and this was really formative for him as far as we know he didn't actually fight at the front line he was a military journalist and censor mostly as far as we know well behind the lines but still the experience was formative and traumatic for him in at least two ways i mean whether or not he actually saw bloodshed himself he saw friends go to the front line and come back maimed and terribly injured or worse still not come back at all secondly of course the habsburg empire that he grew up under which was he saw as his homeland collapsed at the end of the war and that was cataclysmic for him as well and that was you know it was such a profound existential blow the loss of his homeland he never really felt he had a home afterwards well let, let's paint a picture of that world that collapsed a little bit so he he left his hometown as soon as he could with a brief stay at school in Lviv and went to Vienna which was the center of of culture mm. and empire you've got a really good quote here that i pulled out it said um the city of one and three quarter million people contained a rare concentration of geniuses and the atmosphere was febrile and invigorating a snapshot of of Vienna that time in in the years preceding the war you see all kinds of very well-known writers political figures or people who would become well-known political figures later trotsky stalin Marshal tito um and of course hitler who was there at that time a very little known figure at that time um many of these people were going to go on to great notoriety later and you had wonderful artists um klimt Schiller, of course, you had Sigmund Freud, um, Schoenberg in the kind of musical field. Stefan Zweig was well known by then. He had so many artists, artists, writers, musical figures, and political figures, all in the city which was so beautiful, so vibrant with culture at this time, and yet with a feeling of decline in some ways. People said that. You know, there was a feeling that the city was accelerating towards a demise of some sort because the empire was clearly in its in its latter days. So Roth arrived in this city, 1913, and came to the university there and felt that he was arriving somewhere very exciting, felt that it might be somewhere that was a homecoming of sorts. You know, he'd grown up revering the Habsburgs and very much wanting to head towards the heart of Habsburg power. But if he felt that was going to be a homecoming, he was probably disabused of it fairly quickly because there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in the city at the time. And yes, it was still a very invigorating environment in many ways. Uh, But halfway through his studies, the First World War begins. 
he initially hoped that he would manage to continue at university. And being a pacifist, he and his friend Josef Wittlin decided that they didn't want to fight in the war. They were going to resist and um, being drawn into the war. But after a couple of years, they felt compelled. They felt obliged to sign up. You say that he enlisted not out of enthusiasm for the war, but as if viewing it from afar as a narrator for the way it might shape his life story, this life story that he's constantly fabricating. Yes. He, he was never enthusiastic about fighting per se. Um, it didn't really seem to come from a great patriotic um, urge so much as a feeling of, I think, Halfway through the war, so many friends and peers had gone off to fight and either not come back or come back injured. And I think he was starting to feel very guilty about that. But also, as you say, he had an eye on gaining experience as a writer. And this seems to have been you know, quite a clinical, calculated exercise, both on his, his and Josef Wittlin's parts, so that they thought, um, well, this... This could be a source of material. So both wanted to be writers, but I think they both felt they didn't really have very much real world first hand experience of life at that point. And they thought, well, if we go and fight, if we go and serve, uh, this will give us some, some real life material and it will help us develop as writers. And sure enough, they were right. Yeah, so, so planted the seeds for his, yeah, his greatest novel. Yeah, I mean, he was hugely traumatized by the effects of the war, and it certainly hugely helped him as a writer. I mean, it also greatly traumatized him as as a man, as an individual. We well, just imagine the sense of dislocation. He comes back from from the war in 1918. His entire his country no longer exists. The region that he was born in eventually becomes attached to a different country. He's just 24 at this time. Post war life in Vienna was quite difficult, and uh, he moved to Berlin in the summer of 1920. And it seems like his writing went made a great leap in, during his time in this city. But he had quite an ambivalent relationship to, this, to the city. He did, yeah. Um, I mean, Berlin was, as he wrote later in, in The Wandering Jews in 1927, he said something about, you know, who ever goes to Berlin of their own free will? It's, um, but it was a, a city that you had to go to, really, to, to make it as a writer. Um, you know, it was a, a proving ground, really. It was somewhere that was had such uh, a vibrant literary culture. Um, so many publishers, so many newspapers. That's quite, yeah, you said you something like 20 daily newspapers at this time, yeah, and more than 20,000 new books were published there each year. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he went there. I think, again, um, there's something of a pattern here. Him doing things very, in a very calculated fashion to develop as a writer not because he felt any great personal passion you know or any great love for berlin any more than he had any great love of serving in in the army but um it was the thing to do to develop as a writer and it had the desired effect i mean he had a couple of years in in berlin in, in the early to mid 20s um and it was the making of him as a writer it was also, I suppose you could say, the beginning of the the destroying of him. He saw Nazism in the ascendant in that time, and he was greatly troubled by it in a way that many of his peers were not. Um, there are letters to Stefan Zweig from earliest 1930s where he's saying, do not deceive yourself. 
Can you not see where, where things are heading? We have no future in Germany. Roth had been picking up on that really from the, the early to mid twenties. And it's one of the things that's really impressive about him, his clear sightedness, his prescience. You say that his writing in Berlin took on a new empathy, that he saw damaged humans trying to retain the remnants of their dignity, forlorn people straining to kindle faint sparks of happiness. He found human foibles in the city's grimmest corners. He found more to admire in the Berliner lowlife's gruff honesty and lack of affectation than among the prissy hypocrites of the Viennese bourgeoisie. Yeah, that's one of the ways, one of the main ways his writing developed during that time, as far as I can see, that it really became richer and softer and uh, more humane, more more tender. He had the brilliance before. You can see in his earliest pieces of journalism from, from Vienna, there was there was a brilliance there, but maybe not quite the tenderness that we associate with the best of his work. Seeing a vulnerability in the most impoverished and unfortunate uh, members of Berlin society and writing about them in very humane terms. Um, so I, that's something I found very appealing in writing about him, that he was becoming far more humane by that time. So his specialty as a journalist was something called the feuilleton. And what was that for readers who have never, never heard of this? Yeah, so I mean, French word, literally kind of little leaf or little page, um, was a, a journalistic form that really accelerated in the latter half of the 19th century. It was characterized by an impressionistic kind of tone. It was a, a sketch, really, a kind of half to a third of a page sketch. Typically, it took its cue from little moments in, in urban life, a fleeting moment with universal implications that Roth might see in the cafes of Berlin or Vienna or walking the streets. He would see these little moments that he could, he could spin up a whole piece of journalism out of. Um, so it wasn't reporting in its traditional sense as, as reportage, if you like. I mean, there's quite a funny story that's told about when he was writing for one of the, the Viennese newspapers and he was, he was sent off to report on a fire at one of the cafes. He went off and he came back and he wrote a, a feuilleton that I'm sure very beautifully and atmospherically evoked, um, this burnt out cafe after the fire. Um, but the newspaper editor who had sent him off to, to go and write this piece wasn't satisfied because it didn't actually mention you know, a date or time or cause of the fire or any of the things we look at in look for in traditional journalism. And it had to, um, one of his colleagues, Stefan Fingal, was sent off to write a, a piece of basic journalism that actually fulfilled those those basic functions. But um, Roth was, as a reporter, as a journalistic writer, was far more geared towards writing with atmosphere and writing with colour, and finding the little stories in city life that contained universal truths, that contained poetic truths about Viennese or Berlin life in the early to mid-1920s. Yeah, you say in the in the book that he deals in facts of the poetic and psychological kind more than the literalities of journalism. So like extrapolation and analysis take precedence over chronology, location, and narrative. It's forensic on specific human foibles, on glancing moments that summon a psychological landscape, but it's broad brush regarding place and time. 
And this was front page stuff. I mean, this is quite a prestigious thing to write at the time. Oh, absolutely. And he made his name very quickly. I and mean, he was recognized as a great talent very early this on. This seems such a such a thing of its time, this style of writing. You, you quote a German studies scholar who said that these short pieces sought to capture the visceral feeling of acceleration and compression, social conflict and cultural upheaval that defined urban existence. And this was such a time of, of upheaval. I mean, the world that he'd known had just been destroyed. This new world was shaping up with all these new nationalisms and rising tensions. I mean, this would have been the beginning of the Weimar period in Berlin. So street fighting between, you know, the communists and the, the, the brown shirts who had become the Nazis. It's so the, these sort of snapshots of how ordinary people saw their lives were were such a an interesting way of taking the pulse of the time. I think you quote you quote Roth as saying that he has I have to reduce every event with world history status to a personal level yes, in order to feel yes. its greatness and to sense its effect. So this this is what he's doing in these small pieces. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it was such a fascinating time. These cities were so febrile, so much in flux. There was so much going on politically, culturally, dangerous time in so many ways. And there were political demonstrations, there were assassinations, so often it almost seemed normalised. And there's Roth kind of walking the streets, writing again and again about, as he puts it, what I saw. I've got a couple examples here, actually. One would have been from this time in Berlin of, of political turbulence. He describes someone, he says, he projects his innermost feelings and convictions, a slogan on two legs. Since he has no contents, he lives on as a shell, a little like a paper lantern the day after a party. And he, he goes on to say, in order to demonstrate the purpose of his existence, he creates tumults in a phrase in the mistaken view that acoustic effects entitle one to exist. So it's, it's such a brilliant way of capturing this sort of, yeah. you know, the angry man shaking paper on sticks at people. This one I really like too. Yeah. This this comes from much later when he's in, in France and he's sitting with some German friends in a cafe and he says, there will never be a connection between Prussia and France. I'm sitting in a restaurant. The waiter greets me. The waitress gives me a smile. Well, the Germans I am with are frosty to the messenger and the errand boy. They give off a ghastly rigidity. They breathe out not air, but walls and fences, even though their French is better than mine. Just this brief paragraph, he really captures sort of the dynamic between these two cultures and the clash that's about to, to engulf them. Yeah. I love those lines. They encapsulate so much about him. I and mean, as you say, the cultural differences between Germany and France, the feeling of relief that he had when he he got out of Germany in the mid twenties, he, he, he gets to France in 1925, um, kind of settles there and he's kind of based there for the rest of his life, really, with a lot of moving around, but it is his base from then onwards. And you can see the letters that he wrote. He's just, he's contrasting the culture there, the possibility, the freedom, the feeling of liberty and relaxation and fluidity of culture, of way of being. He contrasts that with the German outlook, German behavior again and again. And this is a perfect example of that. So that as he said in, in those lines, the Germans, he was with, give off a ghastly rigidity. They breathe out not air, but walls and fences. He felt that the German mindset was so nationalistic, so concerned with walling people in, defining people by their national origins, by their ethnic origins, and enclosing people within nations within within borders which was anathema to him and he was so much an internationalist and so much wanted to have 
the freedom to move, to be outward looking. And that he, he felt that France was far more geared towards that way of, that way of living, that way of viewing the world. And so it felt like a homecoming. It felt like one of his occasional homecomings that he experienced in his life, which tended to prove illusory in various ways. Um, nowhere quite felt like home apart from his rare returns to to the east to what was Galicia, which as we've seen he felt very ambivalent about in, in other ways. There's something in the in the writing too, like he he contrasted sort of the approach and the worldview of German writing to this this uh, new world he was discovering as well. He said the subjective appraisal of a single transient moment was truer and more honest than the objective and would be definitive study produced by the conventional German approach, that of the good observer. This was such a brilliant observation, especially for somebody who who grew up immersed in the German literary world. He says, the false certainty of the German fixation on objective labels, categorizations, and definitions, how the Germans wanted the world pinned down, where in France, people were more fluid and less uptight. This pointing out of the German mistrust of the undefined, I see this, all, I live in Berlin, and I see this all the time, this, this desire for certainty in an uncertain world represented in you know the, the thousand types of insurance people have. <laughs> where they attempt to secure the future by making it more and more predictable and <laughs> and boundaried and oriented, and he somehow he saw his way beyond yeah. all of this. He was so prescient and clear sighted and lucid. It was one of the fascinating, rather paradoxical things about him. His life was so chaotic in so many ways, and as as it went on, he became more and more angry. Splenetic, terribly consumed by rage in many ways, but so clear-sighted as well. There's a lovely quote from a similar kind of time. This was early 1926. He wrote, um, my dear friend, I'm becoming more and more solitary. Anything and everything is capable of provoking me. I'm afraid I'm going to have to forswear society and break off all, all ties. I no, no longer believe anything I'm told. I see through a magnifying glass. I peel the skins off people and things to see their hidden secrets. After that, you really can't believe anything. I know before the object of my scrutiny knows how it will adapt, how it will evolve, what it will do next. It might change utterly, but my knowledge of it is such that it will do exactly what I think it will do. So it was at this time that his um, his preoccupation shifted to that of fate? Mm. Yeah, it is pretty much from... I mean, that letter was 1926. So it's kind of from, from the late 20s onwards, really. You start to see this, this shift from social realism, social justice towards fate, this more despairing worldview. He seems to feel that um, the world is governed by fate and there's very little that we can do really in our lives are dictated by external forces. This idea of external forces is always a preoccupation when I mean, you see it from the earliest novels where he's writing again and again about the idea of miracles, which he absorbed very deeply growing up in Brody, surrounded by Hasidic Jewish culture. The idea that miracles might be a possibility, that miracles might be real, that God might intervene in one's life. That's there from the earliest novels. So Rebellion, for example, 1924, um, he writes very often about how um, the main character, Andreas Pum, had miracles 
enacted in his life, but it seems that actually they were miracles enacted at the wrong times and the wrong places. You know, it was he was actually rather doomed by the way that God intervened in his life. Um, uh, but Roth is always writing from that point onwards about miracles, about the question of an interventionist God, whether God actually intervenes in our lives in any useful way or whether he sits distantly from behind the stars, uh, as, as Roth puts it again and again, looking on impassively. And we see Roth kind of leaning more and more towards the, the latter. I think the, the thing that really shaped him was living through the First World War and feeling that if there is a God, well, if any God that could, could look on through the war and not intervene, not enact any miracles, not not make make people's lives better, but just see the bloodshed and horror. It was not a god befitting the name, really. Well, that makes sense because so much of his life was um, characterized by a lack of control. I mean, the the implosion of the world that he he knew growing up, and then the interwar years where he was witnessing. And saw much earlier than than many of his contemporaries the complete dis- self destruction of the civilized world, and in a sense his um, his own life sort of mirrored that. Like he he was quite a transient person in the beginning, and it seemed like more it was more of a quest for freedom. And in the end, he was kind of pursued from place to place. He famously lived out of three suitcases much of the time in hotels. He said, "I hate flats. A flat is something final, a crypt." So there's a sense that he's he's pursuing freedom and. And sort of the, this mirroring of the world he did, that he had left behind, like you described, um, it's a really good quote, a hotel is a tolerant multinational space, a micro Habsburg empire, housing workers and residents of many nations, fostering an internationalist spirit that made Roth feel at home. To, mm. to live in hotels is to become an international traveler whose allegiance is not to a country, but to a condition. So in a sense, he found freedom and, and a home in that transience, but it it's uh, in the end, it became sort of a, a pursuit as he as he had to flee from place to place, whether from you know the Nazi takeover of Germany or or the debts that were consuming his life. Well, he was always on this cusp, it seems to me, between freedom and dangerous rootlessness. He always felt that he needed to be free, and this is what this whole thing of living in hotels all the time seems to have come from. I mean, he had a flat, he and Friedel had a flat in Berlin in 1922, I think it was, where his later publisher, Gustav Kiepenheuer, once saw him there and said he, he saw Roth kind of walking up and down in, in, a, in a room in this flat with his coat on, with his hands in the pocket, looking like he was on a railway station platform or something, completely not at home in a flat. So as you say, he, he said it was something final, like a crypt. So he he preferred to live in hotels. He preferred to have the possibility to check out at any time and travel off somewhere else. But he could never really quite attach himself to anywhere either. And he was traveling quite a lot at this time, like in at the peak of his um, journalism, these short sketches, he was being sent all over the place to Russia, to to the Balkans, to Albania, other parts of Europe. Oh, it was a life in constant motion, um, which he found, I'm sure, exciting and intellectually stimulating. For Friedel, who very often travelled around with him, it was the last thing she needed. She had had a 
predisposition towards anxiety anyway and it seems to have been incredibly damaging for her in that respect and uh, you know it really it really broke her and it ended their marriage because she needed stability she needed somewhere calm and settled and uh, you know living with someone like like Roth was probably the last thing she needed in, in many ways but for him yeah it was very exciting and enlivening he he needed constant new experience i think to feel excited and to feel at light feel alive in the world otherwise i think he got bored very easily and started kind of drumming his fingers and looking towards the railway station but as you say as well i think that the whole thing of living in hotels was um it was very important to him as well because it gave him a kind of family set up i think it's in the passage that you referred to earlier i say something about how hotels drew from him a greater loyalty than he felt to any nation and he once described one of his favorite hotels which he doesn't name it but it was probably the hotel beauvau in marseille which was a favorite city for him and he described it as the hotel that i love like a fatherland you know he described himself as a hotel patriot they were parts they they fostered an internationalist outlook and within them as well the hotel staff seemed to have been like a a substitute family for him and he referred somewhere to a hotel porter that looked after him like a father and he loved feeling looked after by hotel staff it's amazing how productive he could be in this in this sort of setting as well i mean he preferred to write in cafes. He didn't mind being interrupted, but at the same time, his output was astonishing. I mean, how many of these short pieces would he be cranking out in the average week? Oh, well, it varied. At, at his most prolific, he, he was turning out hundreds of pieces a year. He had an incredible ability to process what he saw around him and turn it into, into brilliant journalism. He was writing very quickly, very well. And as you say, in in public as well much of the time in a way that i find fascinating and utterly alien to, to my practice as a writer I, i'm distracted by the tiniest thing i have to have peace and quiet and um, preferably an empty house but if not a pair of noise cancelling headphones on and yet roth for him his preferred way of, of writing was to have people around him. My reading of it is that probably because he was, um, yeah, he had a predisposition towards depression, towards anxiety. I don't think he very much liked having the, the kind of silence that confronts you with the voices in your head. I think he liked to be distracted. I think he likes to have a, a white, no a white noise of humanity playing out around him. So he loved sitting in a cafe. And, you know, you can imagine that he could kind of look over the edge of the newspaper that he might be reading and take in what was happening at the next table without someone necessarily noticing, listen in on a conversation going on, maybe furtively jot down a few notes, working something up into a piece of journalism, maybe falling into conversation with his friends who are at the table with him and then saying to them, excuse me, gentlemen, I just have to write for a little while now. You know, there, there are records of him doing exactly that. And his friends then falling quiet and him saying to them, go on, please talk. And them saying, won't you be distracted if we talk? 
and him saying, no, on the contrary, I'm distracted if you're silent. And it was his preferred way of operating to have this this buzz around him. His powers of observation were so keen, like, but in a, in a more traditional setting, they, he couldn't find anything to say. Like He writes about this um, trip to Albania. He's kind of obligated to um, interview the guy who would eventually declare himself king of the country. And he, he says um, interviews are an alibi for a journalist's lack of ideas. So he, he comes away with nothing. Like he sits down and talks to this guy, finds nothing to write about. But then on the street, he's his observations are so rich. He talks about Tirana. He says the inhabitants of Tirana love music and flowers. You can see the men going around with roses in their mouths. They seem to use them as an extra buttonhole. And he sees another, like a, a vendor trying to sell um, <laughs> razors. And he said, he describes him as a man uh, hoping in this land of beards to sell Gillette razors. So he's such a, a rich, um, quotable writer in these little snapshots, yeah. but a more traditional journalistic setting just seems to, seems to um, his, his talents don't rise to that occasion. Yeah. Well, you've, you've highlighted one of the important things that there is to say about him there, which is he's very funny. You know, he's very dryly ironic at times. Um, and it's easy to think of him as a rather gloomy, melancholic writer who was consumed by his prescient awareness of the direction that Europe was heading in. I mean, he was that as well, but he was very funny at the same time. He really had an eye for those little moments, as, as you say, that um, are very darkly, ironically funny. The other thing you've touched on there, which is really important, is that he drew far more inspiration, I think, from the man on the street, from the people in the lower echelons of society than he did from the people in the highest echelons, which is interesting because he was such a monarchist. He started as a Habsburg monarchist, drifted away from that a little bit as a radical young man, but then returned to it as as he got older and felt that the restoration of the Habsburg monarchy was the only hope for Europe. But he never really drew great inspiration from, from writing about such people. I mean, you do see in, in his stories, in his fiction, Polish counts, you see aristocratic figures who are something of an archetype in some of his stories. You can see that he, he had this reverence for the emperor um, for Franz Joseph. But there's actually his most engaged, beautiful, humane writing is very often about the, the people who are in the, in the lower reaches of society. The most appealing qualities in his writing, the tenderness, the humanity of his writing really comes to the fore then when he's writing about people who, yeah, the vulnerable, the dispossessed. I think that's why his writing is so valuable. I mean, he translates these world historic events into the lives of everyday people. It really brings to life what, what it would have been like to live through these times. So the other thing that pursued him all his life was poverty, in a sense. Like in childhood, it was he and his mother were forced to scrape by without a father. But in his later years, when he had become one of Europe's best paid journalists, his poverty seemed self-imposed or self-destructive. It, yeah, I mean, it was a combination of misfortune, genuine misfortune, none of his own making, and terribly self-inflicted events as well. That um, You see him making what we might call now bad life choices again and again. You know, he was terribly unfortunate, and to be married to someone 
who fell into the kind of mental illness that robbed him of his father. To see that happening again was just terrible and deeply traumatic, and you can't help but feel for him there. His response to that, though, of course, is to to fall into alcoholism, to fall into drinking very heavily, very quickly from about 1928 onwards. Well, he was already drinking fairly heavily, but it's from, from that point onwards that it really becomes systematic and all-consuming. And as you watch him putting what little money he had into, A, his drinking, and B, his need to live in expensive hotels all of the time, that does kind of test the limits of your patience and your sympathy as well. You think, um, you know, if you could only have exercised some restraint with your drinking, and if you had to live in hotels, then at least not live in hotels like the Hotel Foyot, which was his favourite hotel in Paris, which was pretty expensive. Um, To live in such places at the expense of rich friends of his, such as Stefan Zweig, who very kindly bailed him out again and again. You don't have a very high opinion of him as a writer. You have a great description here. He said, um, where Roth is a double espresso, Zweig is a half-decent mocha served lukewarm. Yes. Um, (laughs) I've received a little bit of flack for my alleged harshness towards Zweig, and maybe I was, um, you know, I thought that summed up the difference between their writing pretty neatly. No, I think I, yeah, I agree with you. I think it does. You say in another place too, his prose had the, the air of the rich dilettante. Mm. I think what the thing with Swag is you can read him in his own right. And I did read him. I think I read him maybe before I even read Roth and I, I kind of quite enjoyed it. I was quite, quite taken with it. You know, it's quite evocative. It's, engaging it kind of takes you into that world of the viennese coffee house in in the period that we're, we're looking at and it's quite good but he's not dazzling and then you you read roth and it is he's so good and he's so rich and so intense in his writing that if you then go back to Swag, i think this is what it is that if you then go back to him he really pales by comparison And that's the trouble I had when I started reading more of Swag again. Um, While I was working on this book, I felt this is, you know, this is pretty thin gruel by by comparison. I had the same experience. I read um, The World of Yesterday and really enjoyed the snapshot of a world that was about to disappear. And then I read Roth after that. And it's Roth is much more real and visceral. That's exactly it. And The World of Yesterday has great value as a it's a historical documents, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's not worth reading at all, but I f- just find that he's very pale alongside Roth. Yeah, so I kind of just summed it up in that line. Um, but some people felt I've been a little bit, a little bit harsh on him, maybe, but I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I would argue all day long that Roth is the greater writer. Well, it seems to me that the final blow for him came when Hitler was made Chancellor of Germany in 33, and Roth was placed on the Nazis' first list of prohibited writers. So for someone who wrote in German and for whom Germanic culture was his foundation, that must have been the ultimate homelessness, removal of his readership and his means of income, as well as his home, physical home. Yes. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, all these things in combination were the absolute ruin of him. 
yeah, he no longer had a readership. He's just written the Rudetsky March, his great achievement as a novelist. It came out and promptly was banned, was incinerated in bonfire, you know, of the burning of the books in um, early 1933. This book that he'd worked so hard over, his great, great achievements. He didn't receive any royalties. He couldn't be published by Kiepenheuer anymore. He had to, well, he'd already left Germany, but at that point onwards, it had to be a permanent exile. Um, and, you know, that's in terms of his day-to-day life, his prospects of making a living. But existentially, psychologically, from that point onwards, it was confirmation that the world, the culture that he had grown up leaning towards, that he revered, the culture of, of German letters that he saw as the apex of civilization. He had been realizing through the 1920s that that culture was descending into barbarism. Um, but from that point onwards, it was clear that for someone such as him, whose very being, whose, whose self-identification, whose self-definition was as someone, a writer in German, revering German literature, German culture. By the mid to late 20s, he'd realized that German was becoming to him a dead language. Um, and, and yet he was compelled to write in German. It was the only language of the half dozen or so that he spoke to varying degrees. It was the only one that he could write well enough in to write literature. It's the language that he, he thought in. It was the language he grew up you know, consumed by, defined by. So imagine that. So, you know, I really tried to, to think about this while writing the book. That imagine the language that you think in becoming an embodiment of a culture that rejects you, that hates you, that wants to, that wants to kill you, that wants to turn you into exile and which becomes an embodiment of a, a culture that is descending rapidly into barbarism and yes it's the language that you def- you define yourself by and that you think in so i think this enacted upon him a profound um feeling of homelessness the language that seemed like home to him no longer seemed like home and so at his very essence he became homeless to come back to that line that he said earlier, um, and that I've mentioned earlier about him being proud to be a defector from Jews and from Germans. I think what's happening there is having felt rejected, um, by so much by German society, he wanted to reclaim a modicum of dignity and agency by trying to cast that exile as one of his own volition. Exile did not suit him in the slightest, living among emigres, kind of always on the, on the move. That kind of ceased him to an extent, but the rootlessness, the precariousness, the insecurity of the way of life that he was forced into, coupled with constant drinking and lack of money, um, really was so destructive to him. So really, the, the final six years from 1933 onwards, were a pretty steady, accelerated decline. You really get the sense of the walls closing in around him. You know, he, the more he drinks, yeah, the more yeah. paranoid he becomes. The more controlling of those around him, the more demanding. 
And at the same, he's, he's sponging off his friends and bankrupting publishers and demanding advances, but not delivering the work. Like yeah. glimpses of genius somehow continue to come through in his yeah. in his novels, despite this this uh, decreasing physical condition. But uh, he must not have been an easy person to be around. No, I mean, an absolute nightmare to be around, flailing around, you know, very real risk of pulling down the people around him. Uh, some lessons I refer to that I say are rather like the howls and gasps of a man flailing around in quicksand, unaware that um, you know he's trying to grab the hand of someone who he hopes will will pull him to safety, but he's at risk of pulling his rescuer down into the quicksand as well. And yet, as you say, he was somehow his talent remained intact. 1937. He wrote um, Weights and Measures, which Zweig remarked upon is extraordinarily. It showed that his, it seems that his talent is intact and he may yet be saved. Um, Zweig said, there were these flashes, these moments right to the very end where some, you know, somehow, despite it all, he showed that at his best, he was as brilliant as ever. You know, that sometimes there were few and far between. And it's frustrating. It was frustrating for him as a writer, and it's frustrating for us as readers that we can see books that could have been much better had he worked longer and harder on them. But instead, um, he wrote them in a hurry. He borrowed bits from other books and transplanted them into the work that he was working on at the time. So I mentioned earlier what was going to be a novel called Strawberries, where he never quite finished this because he kept working on it and then pulling chunks from it and pushing them into into other books in order to pad them out and finish them off. So Weights and Measures is an example of that. Um, so he was always you know, writing very frantically, up against deadline, trying to meet deadlines for publishing contracts that he had hastily signed, taken an, an advance for, and then you know, either not written the book or kind of forgotten about it and got back to it and had to very hastily write something in order to fulfill the contract um, because he had the publisher breathing down his neck saying, you, you've taken our money, but you haven't delivered. Are you going to do this or what? His personal decline seemed to parallel the decline of his world. I think you summed him up really beautifully in the book. You said, Despite a torturous personal decline that paralleled the collapse of the civilized world, Roth drew from his multiple traumas to create works that endure owing to their conscience, precipience, ironic humor, and naked humanity. Like Roth himself, his characters strain for agency in a tumultuous world, like birds trying to fly through a gale. Mm, well, thank you. I'm glad you felt that those lines worked, because that seemed to me to be how he he relates to his world and how we relate to him as readers, why why he's so fascinating, you know, because he really does he's constantly working through the world that he was living through. And we see all of the difficulties of, of that period funneled into his journalistic and novelistic work um, with incredible acuity and incredible richness and ironic humor and depth of understanding of the direction society was heading in and the way in which people function 
and yeah that that bit about um you know agency struggling for agency like birds trying to fly through a gale that comes back to this thing that we keep talking about about the possibility of individual liberty individual agency and how that weighs against fate and the way that he felt that lives were determined by fate by external factors that seems to shape the direction of our lives i wonder if that's why he's seeing a bit of a resurgence today because we seem to be entering a time of turbulence as well where the the post cold war world yeah. that we knew is starting to fall apart and we're we're not quite sure what's going to replace it yeah well on the one hand about a century on from when he was writing you know we are just bordering on a, a century from when he really developed as as a writer he really came to the fore from 1923 onwards um so he is for us a way into a world that is vanishing from view you know the that world the last survivors of that world are obviously very elderly now i was thrilled to find one person who remembered meeting him dan morgenstern the son of his friend soma morgenstern dan is 93 now and remembered meeting roth when he was 8 years old and that for me was magical to to speak with someone just on the telephone but still to speak with someone who was living connection with that world but that world of course is rapidly fading from view and um, so partly he is roth is a conduit to that vanishing world but also his his work seems to speak to the way that our world is unfolding today the rise of nationalism splintering of unifying multinational ideas such as the european union we see parallels between that and and his world and the way that he writes about the splintering of the self fragmentation of the self hyphenation of identity although he doesn't always call it as such we can recognize that crisis of identity i think so for those who have never read him uh, where should the modern reader start it's a difficult question to answer in a way cuz the first thing you think of is well the rodetsky march is his great achievements um wonderful wonderful novel but by some distance his longest book you know around i think 360 pages in in english translation so in some ways you could see that that might be a little bit off-putting for someone who hasn't read him at all so i tend to say the place to really start with him is with the journalism with the collected journalism because it's usually so bite-sized you know it's these feuilleton forms that are typically in english a, a few pages long these rich poetic beautifully observed beautifully formed little nuggets of experience from 1920s and 30s europe i think they are a very good way in read read those give those a try and i'm 99% sure that anyone will will read them and be hooked really and think okay i need more of this what's um where shall i go next so then i would say from there go to the rodetsky march go to job if you want something much shorter go to the legend of the holy drinker which was his final work short story stroke novella that um 
he was working on in, in the final months of his life, um, which you can get through very easily. And there's a beautiful, perfectly formed little story. You know, is another example of his talent being intact to the very end. Go to uh, the 1920s novels. Rebellion is excellent from 1924. Go to The Wandering Jews, which was an essay published in 1927 as a sketch of, of Jewish life in the mid-20s in Europe. You know, but the thing is, actually, I could go on and on because there's very little that isn't worth reading one way or another. Uh, and you find that once you're into him, you will read him with a certain amount of indulgence as well, because there are certain books that you read and you think, okay, um, this isn't quite as good as some of the other stuff. So, I mean, for me, I would say the novel Right and Left, uh, Confession of a Murderer, for me, two of his weaker novels. And yet there's plenty going on in there that, that makes it worthwhile reading. So he's a very addictive writer. He's someone who, once you've got hooked by him, you find yourself just reading the less good stuff anyway, because it's still him. And you know that there will still be brilliant sentences and brilliant insights. Yeah. And, and it naturally leads um, to curiosity about his life and the man behind the writing, which leads directly to biography. It's called Endless Flight, The Life of Joseph Roth. And I hope listeners pick it up. It's a really great read. Well, that's so kind of you. Thank you. Um, you know, I found it so fascinating to write the book and to immerse myself in, in his life and his times and his, and his world as far as I could. Um, while, um, A, obviously it being a century on, but B, trying to research his, his life through a pandemic. Um, mm. which just briefly, I, I can say, you know, I, I did to the best of my ability. Um, I ended up going to, I went to what's now Ukraine. I went to Brody, uh, his hometown. Um, I, I went to Paris. I went to Amsterdam, which was quite a, a key location because once he was in exile, he was published by an emigre press or two emigre presses based, uh, in, in Amsterdam and Brussels. Um, so I, yeah, I, I did my best to make the, um, to, to make the book feel like it was rooted in the places that he was rooted in. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope it works. I'm very glad to hear that you feel that it did. He's not an easy writer to follow around either. I mean, he's he's mm. quite peripatetic. The The range of places that he lived in and traveled in to, to track yeah. that is quite a feat. Oh, well, it was, um, thank you. It, it was a labor of love, really. I mean, you know, when you get that interested in someone, um, it becomes really fascinating to follow in their footsteps as best you can and to see the places that they lived really gives you a tingle, gives you a buzz. Um, so to start to, to go to Brody, to go to the town where he grew up was an absolute thrill for me. And to walk the streets of Paris, to stay in the hotel, for example, the Hotel de la Place de Lourdes, which was the hotel he first lived in, when he moved there in 1925, I stayed there and that obviously gave me a real tingle as well. And just to explore the surrounding streets in the knowledge that it's what he would have done to drink in some of the same bars, hmm. not to the same level, but um, <laughs> I got in the habit of, um, of researching all day while I was there and then taking a drink at, at the end of the evening in, in a bistro I found, which was a place, um, which I knew he used to, to go in go and drink in called 
the Au Petit Suisse. Um, I would have drunk in the uh, Café Tournon, which was his great, um, you know, his great watering hole, really, and when when he was there. But it was closed for renovation while I was there. But I used to go at the end of the day to the Café, the Bistro Au Petit Suisse, and take dinner. Um, you know, late in the evening, about half ten, they would serve dinner, and I would have a brandy. Um, and I would look back over the day and write up my notes and feel rather like I was, I was traveling. I was kind of, you know, uh, living in, in, in his footsteps at that time in a way that found, that felt fascinating and yeah, really quite useful for the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. You brought it to life beautifully in, in both the book and in our conversation today. So thank you very much, Karen, for your time. It's uh, really enjoyable to dip into this world with you. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanbernard.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. 